The following episode contains graphic descriptions of violent acts. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am Sarah, recording here today with Miss Darcy. How are you doing, Darcy? I'm doing pretty well. I'm enjoying my summer. Classes are over, and I'm loving my life. It is a Saturday afternoon, and we are kicking it here, talking about strange stuff, crazy cases, and things that make people say, hmm, that was so fascinating. This show, obviously, is about some of the weird, crazy, and bizarre details. No, we do not get into every single specific factoid. Sometimes we miss some things, but that is why this is called Bizarre and Fascinating Details, not Bizarre and Semi-Interesting Details. Um, Today's episode is definitely one of my favorite topics. I don't know about you, Darcy. What about you? Yeah, I think it's really interesting just in the way that you think something's over and then end up it's a whole other can of worms that opens up. So basically this first article that we're going to start the show off today is if you hadn't guessed what we're talking about today, we're going to talk about Santa Cruz, the murder capital. This was a very, very interesting time in history. Um, There were three major serial killers all kind of operating in the same area. So let me read this article, and it should give our listening audience a little bit of an idea about why Santa Cruz was called the murder capital for a while. This article I got from SantaCruzLive.com, and it was called When Serial Killers Terrorize Santa Cruz. The news that John Lindley Frazier died in prison last week of an apparent suicide reminded me of the long-ago era when contiguous to the post-Woodstock Charles Manson We are family milestones. Santa Cruz turned into the murder capital of it, if not the world, at least the Western United States. Frazier, along with his notorious counterparts, Herbert Mullen and Edward Kemper, excuse me, Edmund Kemper, presided over an area of darkness that engulfed Santa Cruz as the culture shifted from one of restraint to the false sense of freedom that accompanied the use of mind-altering drugs and a sense of anything goes. The three local mass murders all were seriously disturbed, demented, and essentially terrorized the community for about a year or so. The connection to the Manson family murders was made earlier on, as Time magazine reported back in 1970. Fraser's killings were particularly horrific since he targeted a local surgeon and his family. We're going to let Darcy get a little bit into a little bit more detail on that. Um, With the Manson murders in mind, many local residents, according to news accounts, turned on local hippies, thinking this was part of an uprising from the world of peace, love, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But it was local hippies who told the cops about Frazier, who had been living in a tiny shanty in Santa Santa Cruz. So the Frazier killings happened in 1970. In 1972, Kemper started his killing spree. In the same period, more bodies also began appearing to be yet the work of another serial killer. A young Santa Cruz man, Herbert Mullins, was finally apprehended for that and charged with 13 murders. 
Camper, however, remained on the loose, making visits to psychiatrists with body parts in the trunk of his car. He was finally apprehended after calling local police from Pueblo, Colorado. Kemper, who at age 15 killed his grandparents, was also convicted of eight murders and sentenced to eight concurrent life sentences. So to this day, both Kemper and Mullen remain behind bars. There is a theme of violence in Santa Cruz County from the very origins of the county. The cruelty of Father Andreas Quintana and the crushing of his testicles by the Mission Indians and the first execution in American-occupied California in 1846 are just further examples of deep-running strain of violence in the past for this area. Beginning with the slaughter of Dr. Victor Ota in the fall of 1970 by John Lindley Frazier, Santa Cruz County endured a string of 27 murders over a span of 30 months and became known as the murder capital of the world. I believe that the murders, the the capture and conviction of the three men responsible brought Santa Cruz County kicking and screaming into the late 20th century. So So that being said... Obviously, there was some major shit. They said 27 murders happened over a certain period of time in Santa Cruz, which is a lot. So we are going to dig a little bit deeper into that. Darcy is going to take a look at Frazier and Mullen, and I am actually going to talk about Edmund Kemper. So Santa Cruz, beautiful city, population of about 62,000. Santa Cruz actually means Holy Cross. It is the largest city Um, in Santa Cruz County. Um, Interestingly enough, it is a a coastal city. So it's on the Pacific Ocean, situated on the northern edge of Monterey Bay. It's about 32 miles south of San Jose and about 75 miles south of San Francisco. The city is part of a 12-county San Jose, San Francisco, Oakland combined statistical area. It's known for its moderate climate, natural environment, coastline, redwood forest, alternative community lifestyle, and socially liberal leanings. It is also the home of the University of California, Santa Cruz. Darcy's going to talk a little bit about that part later because it's super fun. Um, A very, very beautiful little city. It has an oceanfront amusement park operating continuously since 1907. Um, The present day site of Santa Cruz was the location of a Spanish settlement beginning in 1791 which included the Mission Santa Cruz and the Pueblo of Branciforte. The city of Santa Cruz was incorporated in 1866 and chartered in April 1876. Important early industries there included lumber, gunpowder, lime, and agriculture. So this is a beach resort community that was created. So the beach resort kind of vibe was created in the 19th century, but obviously it's got some very liberal leanings. It's got some environmental type issues. It's kind of a hippie dippy lifestyle with, you know, the commune type of a vibe. And I think that's sort of what we're going to delve into a little bit with our first topic for the day. Darcy, you want to go ahead and jump in? Yeah. So On October 19th of 1970, firefighters responded to a fire at the home of the Ota family. And as the fire chief was looking around for a fire hydrant with his flashlight, he discovered that there were five bodies in the pool. Oh, good Lord. So they were, yeah, so they were identified. Obviously. Say again. This was at night, obviously. I believe so, yeah. Okay. Because he was looking with a flashlight. So that would make sense. So they were identified as Dr. Victor Oda, his wife, Virginia, their sons, Derek and Taggart, 
and I didn't write this down, but I believe they were around 12, 10, between 10 and 12 years oh, old God. with the sons. And in Dr. Oda's secretary, Dorothy Cadwallader, they were, they had been tied up with silk scarves and shot to death execution style. Oh and God. under the windshield wiper of the family's Rolls Royce was a typewritten note ranting about, quote, persons who misuse the natural environment. And it was signed with tarot symbols. So this is somebody who is uh, clearly not all here with us in Santa Cruz from the jump. So the police kind of put out the notice in the town. And like he said, it's a pretty small town. So I imagine everybody's pretty close and everybody knows everybody, one of those types of things. And it didn't take well, it probably very had long. a very small type community feel as well back then. I'm sure people felt as right. though they knew one another. And to have something like this happen right smack dab in the center of some place that people felt was safe was probably absolutely terrifying. Right. I imagine it's kind of like a little surfer community. Yeah. Too, you know, so I imagine everybody knows everybody kind of a thing. So it didn't take very long for the tips to start coming in. And four days after the murders, police arrested John Lindley Frazier. Frazier was 24 years old and he lived in a dilapidated shack, which is about a half mile from the Odo's house. And people kind of said he mostly stayed inside studying the Bible. Okay. But when he did leave and go outside, he would warn anyone who would listen that the natural world was being destroyed by rich men and that God had chosen him to save the environment. So like I said, he was arrested pretty quickly after the murders. And so you would think this small town could breathe a sigh of relief because the violence has ended, but that was really kind of just the beginning. So Herbert Mullen was also a serial killer who was working in this same time period. And he was born on April 18th, 1947, which was the 41st anniversary of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. By all accounts, he was a normal kid. In high school, he was actually voted most likely to succeed. But when he was 16, his best friend was killed in a car crash. In response to his best friend dying, Mullen created a shrine to his friend in his home and began obsessing that he might be gay. What? So the next year Wait, the, is when Mul he started hearing Mullen was gay or that his friend yeah. was gay? Yeah, he, Mullen started kind of obsessing that he might, might be gay okay. as he's setting up the shrine to his friend who died. And the next year, he started hearing some voices. And over Terrific. the course of the next few years, Mullen would check himself in and out of mental facilities, presumably to deal with, I'm not sure if it was ever diagnosed, but paranoid paranoid schizophrenia you know would clearly be what we're talking about here Ugh. he's probably diagnosed after he was arrested but yeah he never stayed very long in the facilities and he started using lsd and amphetamines because it was like 1972 i'm sure that made everything better did. too i'm sure that really that fixed everything and just balanced his chemicals right out yeah amphetamines are notably <laughs> you know, known to kind of level everybody out. Everybody gets super chill. Um, Nothing bad so ever happens when you're on amphetamines. So it's no, all that's good. That's the thing we all know about amphetamines. That's widely accepted that they make you super normal <laughs> and nothing strange happens. They balance your internal chemical system right out. You're good. Right. Especially when you combine with LSD, which also <laughs> even better. Exactly. You definitely don't have weird hallucinations or anything no, like that. This never. Is somebody who's never used either LSD or amphetamines, so I don't know. 
Yes. That's just what I've learned in school. Right. Widely accepted. <laughs> and that's true. Popular opinion. Sarcastic, but that's just because <laughs> of who I am and how the way I talk, but I've actually never done either of those drugs. <laughs> Me either. And hashtag never, never, never. Hashtag don't do drugs. <laughs> hashtag just say no. <laughs> hashtag prescription. There's only been written to you by a physician only. Hashtag I even have trouble taking those. <laughs> No, I don't. I for sure don't because I have uh, insomnia and I just, I, anyways. Um, so in 1972, Mullen started hearing a persistent voice in his head that told him that only human sacrifices could stop the next big earthquake from destroying California. Oh, nice. If you've ever lived in California, been to California, read about California, all they talk about out there is the next big one, which is coming at some day, but that is a hot topic and it's apparently been a hot topic for almost 50 years now or more than 50 years now. But nope, it's almost very years, funny that this dude felt as though he could personally protect everyone in California. If he just took certain action, Sarah, yeah, you're laughing, but he heard this from God. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's so. not, that's not crazy at all. <laughs> no. No. Sounds so God normal. told him that the Vietnam War had been sufficient in previous years with all of the deaths caused in Vietnam, if we're going to get political. But Mullen worried that with the war ending, that would precipitate the next earthquake. So on October 3rd, Wait, so 1972. So God needs some sort of death sacrifices to like yeah. make him appeased and happy? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's got serious yeah. biblical background behind it and a lot of uh, so, you know, know. a lot of evidence backing up that theory. Well, and I think a lot of verbal hallucin- hallucinations are religiously related to, you know. That's frightening. Um, and particularly mm-hmm. if, if you're looking at the Old Testament when that's most of the shit about God being violent and angry and absolutely having very little mercy. Well, and actually talking to people like they heard his literal voice. Yes. So this just yeah. in place, when you look at it in context with that, it's kind of terrifying. Yeah. Anyway. So on October 3rd of 1972, Mullen was driving in his car when he saw a homeless man named Lawrence White walking along the roadside. He was Mullen like, hey, pulled over. And he didn't say hey, though. He did pull over. And then he beat him to death with a baseball bat. Oh, God. So opposite. Yeah. Not great. 11 days later, he picked up a hitchhiker, 24-year-old Cabrillo college student, Mary Guilfoyle, and he stabbed her to death and then cut her open. So he thought that human bodies contained pollution and it was his job to find it. The fuck? And so he, yeah, so he left her remains in the Santa Cruz mountains, which was coincidentally also being used as a dumping ground for another serial killer who was working at the time. At least one serial killer. At least one. <laughs> Possibly more. And so on, right? And on October 2nd, Mullen decided that he needed to confess. He had been a lifelong Catholic, and so he went to St. Mary's Church in Los Gatos, and he confessed to Father Henry Tomei. During the confession, Mullen again heard the voice telling him that the priest was volunteering himself as a sacrifice. Okay, then. So Mullen stabbed and stomped Father Tomei to death, and his body was later found in the confessional. Oh, my God. And when police found him, they at first thought that this was a burglary that had gone wrong. 
so it wasn't connected immediately. And in February of 1973, the bodies of four teenagers who were camping in Henry Cowell Redwood State Park were discovered. Mullen had killed them with a 22 caliber rifle after warning them that they were polluting nature. I don't know if maybe they had a campfire or something, but he comes upon them, tells them they're polluting nature, and he shot them. Can you imagine if you're just a, a, a kid, a teenager, chilling, they went a little camping or whatever, and some fucking crazy-ass psycho comes up and starts accusing you of, like, killing the environment and then just, like, gets all crazy violent with you. Like, you never, you never think about things like that happening when you're right. on sort of a normal everyday outing. And I'm sure these kids had done what they were doing many times before. Sure. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is why I don't go places and do things, but it's also not, not why I don't leave my house. Oh, it's why I don't leave my house sometimes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, <laughs> too many crazy uh, people out there. Yeah. So, so there is, there's very few psychopaths living in my one bedroom apartment. Just me is living um, in my house. Just me. <laughs> just me and my dog. So after these bodies were found, the official murder count in Santa Cruz since January was now up to 13. And so on February 13th, 1973, this was Herbert Mullen's last murder. He was driving around Santa Cruz and he came across 72-year-old Fred Perez doing some yard work at his house. He pulled out a rifle and shot him in broad daylight. Because it was the middle of the day, neighbors reported Mullen's license plate number to the police, and he was arrested minutes later without Good incident. God. And during his interrogation, Mullen said, quote, we human beings through the history of the world have protected our continents from cataclysmic earthquakes by murder. In other words, a minor natural disaster avoids a major natural disaster. End quote. That is literally the craziest I, shit I think I've heard in a long time with respect to reason someone commits murder. Right. Motivation to commit and murder. And it's not just bullshit. Like he was, he's, he's mentally unwell. He, he legit believed it with every fiber of his being. Right. And he, it's not like he could plead um, insanity because one, insanity is illegal uh, status and it's not a medical diagnosis and two he knew that he was murdering people it's just the reasons he thought he was doing it were cuckoo banana sandwich oh my god okay so yeah then what happened so that's pretty much it so after he is in custody police believe the serial killings would stop right because they like, got the got murder <laughs> they got serial killer we can all go to bed happy right nope opposite epic fail and the reason for that is my little buddy Edmund Kemper was out there committing crimes. Now, Edmund Kemper is a very, very interesting character. So I've heard a number <laughs> of different podcasts about Edmund Kemper, and I find him a very, very fascinating person because he was incredibly intelligent, and he has a long history of psychological issues, but manipulating what he knows about psychology to make people think he was normal enough to either not suspect him of doing anything wrong or to think he was okay to, to sort of participate in the world as a normal person. So I know that Edmund Kemper has gained a little bit of knowledge or not a little bit of knowledge, but a little bit of notoriety, a little bit of popularity within the last couple of years with the Netflix series Mindhunters. 
They it's so good. They featured him, so we recommend that. Go check it out if you're interested in kind of seeing sort of a, a more contemporary um, depiction of Kemper. But he is one of the most heinous and often overlooked serial killers in American history. Edmund Kemper III, at 6 feet 9 inches with an IQ of 145, he's pretty much one of the most intimidating killers in every sense of the world. word. Because not only is he and, physically intimidating... Sorry, just- He's incredibly intelligent as well. Yeah, and just real quick. So if you don't know, the average IQ is about 100, and the standard deviation is about 15. So Above if you're looking at the total average population, you're looking at between 85 and 115. Right, exactly. And his was what, 145? 145. Ah, that's crazy. So very, very scary. This is, I don't even, this is beyond Dexter type of scary. Kemper's murderous impulses can be traced back to his childhood, where he presented troubling behavior as a small child. His father, Edmund Emil Kemper, was a World War II veteran who was in a loveless and damning marriage with his mother, Clarnell Elizabeth Kemper. Clarnell. That's a rough name. Right? We'll post some pictures of Clarnell. She looked like a very interesting lady. Clarnell was an alcoholic, possibly suffering from borderline personality disorder. The older Kemper, so his mental illness definitely has some genetic links in there. His father worked on a nuclear bomb test site in the Pacific and said once, quote, suicide missions in wartime and the later atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with Clarnell. Holy shit. First of all, there's no love between those two. Second of all, really? (laughs) Clarnell, getting the bad rap from the person that's supposed to love you the most. I mean, that's a little dramatic, but yeah, that doesn't paint her in in a great light. She was a very, very interesting person herself. She would constantly berate her husband for what she perceived as his doing menial jobs and refusing... To, uh, ref- and his refusal to coddle her son for fear that it would turn him gay. No, oh, Jesus Christ. So the father's like, I don't want my son to be gay, so I'm not going to coddle him. He needs the roughest treatment possible. And then the mom, who's got the mental illness and the no love for the father, so she's constantly nagging and berating. So this kid is growing up in an environment that is not setting him up for success. Yeah, so for real. at the same time, he's starting to display these dark fantasies related to sexuality and death. He would decapitate his sister's dolls and talked, stalked his second grade teacher outside her house, ca- carrying his father's bayonet. Oh, my God. How tall do you think he was in second grade? I bet you he was at least six feet tall. No, at eight years old? No. He was an intimidating character, according to all accounts that I know, I've seen. But- he had to have been pretty tall. He had to have been at least 5'9". Um, at the age of 10, he killed his family's pet cat. And at the age of 13, he killed another, this time keeping pieces of the animal in the closet until his mother found them. Mm. In 1957, his father left the family, leaving him in the company of just his mother and his two sisters. So Edmund Kemper had two sisters. His mother feared that Kemper, would, who already stood at 6'4", at the age of 15... She feared him, clearly, for obvious reasons, so she made him sleep in a locked basement for fear that he would harm his sisters. She would regularly berate him and insult him, telling him that he was a boy that no women would ever love. So he's really just getting this shit from all yeah. angles. Like, she's afraid of him. She's she's thinking he's going to do something awful. And so she's putting him in situations where he feels unloved, isolated, and hated. Um, at the age of 14... 
Kemper ran away from his mother's house to live with his father in California. However, his father had remarried and sent Kemper then to live with his grandparents on their ranch, thinking, okay, I'm going to send him out here to this ranch. He's going to get this good, healthy lifestyle. The parents are going to be able to give him the love and attention that he needs. He's um, going to toughen up on the ranch. Yeah. But, and there's some pictures of his grandparents too. They're actually a pretty attractive couple, I think. But he transferred that rage from his parents and sort of these feelings that they didn't want him, that isolation and rejection to his grandparents. After getting into an argument with his grandmother, um, Kemper shot her in the head with his grandfather's twenty-two rifle. Then he mm. killed his grandfather as he was walking up the driveway towards the house so that he would not find his wife dead. Kemper then turned himself into the police after calling his mother and asking her what to do. So at that point, the police, obviously, you know, he's a kid. He's a 15-year-old kid, so they don't really know what to do with him at that point. But they send him to the criminally insane unit of Ascadero State Hospital. That is where they first tested his IQ and learned that he was this insanely intelligent young man. Um, on his 21st birthday in 1969, he was finally released from the mental hospital and put back into the care of his mother who was now working as an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And I'm going to delve a little bit kind of more into some of these topics. This is just kind of a, a basic summary oh, okay. of the, the, the details here so that we can get so, sort of a baseline idea of this guy. So he had to check in with probation psychologists, but he knew exactly what to say to them from his experience in the mental hospital where he worked sort of assisting psychiatrists and psychologists with the patients at the mental hospital. Talk about dropping the fucking ball. How do you, if somebody is in there for psychological disorders that include violence, how do you let them work in the psychiatric office? He fooled them. I mean, I know, but like, under no circumstances should you even be fooled to think like, yeah, this person should work with the psychiatrist. Right. We know that now, but this I think is sort of like the um, silence of the lambs kind of a thing where like Mm. he was just so good at manipulating and lying and just convincing people. And there are people that are like that out there who just have this ability to make you believe anything. And granted, some of the people that they're convincing are not exactly the most intelligent people, but some of the people that they're convincing are college-educated, having degrees, experienced and trained individuals. So clearly a lot has changed in the psychological field since this happened way back when. But the fact that he was able to convince so many people just is incredible. It just blows my mind. Yeah, it's bonkers. So after about a year... Out of this hospital, he began living in places across Northern California, periodically returning to his mother's house when he'd run out of money. So he was kind of doing odd jobs at that point. At that time, though, he started embarking on his murder spree where he would pick up young women who were hitchhiking and murder them. He would have sex with their corpses and dismember their bodies. So he was also the necrophiliac as well, kind of like Ted Bundy. His first victims were Mary Ann Peche Pesh, and Anita Lachesa two Fresno State students he encountered while driving around Berkeley, California. Kemper brought the women to a wooded area nearby where he originally intended to rape them, but then he panicked and ended up stabbing and choking them to death. He then stuffed their bodies into the trunk of his car and drove over to his house in Alameda, where he was living at the time. Interestingly enough, a police officer stopped him for a broken taillight. He had the bodies in the trunk. Mm, They did not search the car. So that's strike one that he could have been apprehended and was not. Once he was home again, he raped the bodies. Again, those those two girls are dead. 
um, before dismembering them and places and placing pieces of the bodies in plastic bags where he disposed of them in a ravine near Loma Prita Mountain. So Kemper, Kemper continued this. For his next victim, she was a 15-year-old Korean dance student, Aiko Koo. During this encounter, he accidentally locked himself out of his car, but was able to persuade her to let him back in. Oh, my god! So this just really, I think, kind of highlights this man and his incredible ability to sort of convince and manipulate people. Yeah. By early 1973, Kemper had run out of funds and had moved back in with his mother at her home on the UC Santa Cruz campus. That is the point where he continued his killings, again, murdering three more college students he picked up around campus. He even buried one of the dismembered heads of his victims in his mother's garden and left it facing upward toward her bedroom. According to him, he did this because his mother always wanted people to look up at her. So she was also a very tall and sort of intimidating woman as well. But on April 20th, 1973, Kemper's murders reached their natural culmination when he bludgeoned his mother to death with a claw hammer while she slept in her bed. Claw hammers back in the day, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s were just evidently sitting around as a common thing in the house because isn't that, I think that's what my grandfather used when he murdered the woman that he murdered. I thought the claw hammer was like the back of a regular hammer, like the part that you pull out the nail out of the wall. I don't think so. I think a claw hammer is is totally different. And uh, people will post a picture of what a claw hammer looks like. Let me look here real quick. Maybe that's why they stopped being so prevalent. Probably. I mean, that's probably not. Yeah. um, Maybe it is. Yeah, it's just a regular hammer. It's just the back of the hammer? I thought Let's just chalk that up to a thing I knew that I didn't expect I was going to know. He killed his mother with that claw hammer as she slept. Mm-hmm. He then decapitated her and raped her severed head before placing it on a yeah, shelf and using it as a dartboard. He cut out her tongue and larynx and placed them in the garbage disposal. They were so like kind of rough and ugh, that they wouldn't yeah. go down. So I know that he yeah. had trouble with that. He then invited her, his mother's best friend over to the house before murdering Wait, her. Let's go back. Yes. You know the trouble with that? Because there's more graphic descriptions that he was unable to sort of dispose of them through the garbage disposal. They would not grind up. No, I know that. But you said, I know the trouble with that. No, I was going to talk. As if you have also had, no, had experience no, no. with that. We are going to talk a little bit more about that in, in just a minute because I have more details <laughs> on that. But he was un, he put them in the garbage disposal, but the garbage disposal would not get rid of them in the way he thought they would. It totally sounded like you were like, no. in there. <laughs> no. So then Kemper invited his mother's best friend over to the house before murdering her and stealing her car. He drove to Colorado, but not after hearing any news but after not hearing any news of the murders, he ended up calling the police from a payphone and confessing to the murder of his mother. At that time, the police did not take the call seriously, which prompted Kemper to admit all of the murders he had committed to get their attention. When asked why he turned himself in, Kemper said, the original purpose was gone. I just said to hell with it and called it all off. So he's on this murderous rampage related to his mother, but then once she was gone, I think he sort of lost the steam of it all because she had been so belittling and so awful to him that once she was gone, like, what what is the purpose anymore? Right. So Kemper was arrested and convicted of eight counts of first-degree murder. He attempted suicide twice and even requested the death penalty, but failed on all counts and was given seven consecutive life sentences. He is now currently imprisoned at the California Medical Facility alongside Herbert, Merle, Herbert Mullen and previously Charles Manson before he passed away. He still resides there today. He has willingly participated in a large number of interviews from reporters and law enforcement over the course of his 
imprisonment. And he is also the character of <laughs> a lot of speculation and a lot of shows and using this sort of a character as sort of inspiration behind fictional characters as well because of the, his, mm-hmm. his sort of uniqueness when it comes to serial killers. Something else interesting about him, though, is he is pretty much considered a model prisoner at the California Medical Facility where he is in charge of scheduling other inmates' appointments with psychiatrists and has spent over 5,000 hours narrating books on tape for the blind. Yeah, I remember learning that fact and being blown away. I would love to get my hands on a book narrated by Edmund Kemper. Wouldn't that be so interesting? Yes. He is just, I find, extremely fascinating just because the fact that we're going to play some, some audio clips of Kemper here. He was released to the one person that authorities at the state mental hospital recommended he never see again. I got paroled to my mother. Atascadero decided that I didn't never need to talk to her again at all. Don't give her a Christmas present. Leave her alone. She got her pound of flesh out of you. I wasn't sniveling about my mother to them. I didn't like to hear what they had to say about her. She went to three husbands like a hot knife through butter. When Four the- months after I was out, I was back into the fantasy bag. My first date was an absolute disaster. It wasn't her fault. You know? And I didn't blame her even then. I'm saying it was a terrible tragedy, but boy, was it, boy, she didn't ever talk to me again. It was awful. That was one week before I murdered my mother. I said, she's got to die. And I've got to die. Or girls like that are going to die. And that's when I decided I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. And she went out to a party. She got soused. She came home, went to sleep. I was woken up by that. I got, came out. I walked up to her bed. She's laying there reading a paperback. As many thousands of nights before. And she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Shit. I looked at her. I said, no. I said, good night. And I knew I was going to kill her. You know? And I'm so cold. It's so hard. And that's the first time in 10 years I've looked at it that way. I mean, that intensely, that honestly. It hurts. Because I'm not a lizard. I'm not from under a rock. I came out of her vagina. See? Came out of my mother. And in a rage, I went right back in. For seven years, she said, I haven't had sex with a man because of you. My murderous son is one of our arguments. I cut off her head. And and I humiliated her corpse. I said, there. You know? A six young woman dead because of the way she raises her son and the way her son is raised, the way he grows up. And what's her closing words? I suppose you want to sit up all night and talk. Little pause for insertion. Clearly this guy had a super disturbed childhood, and I think this sort of created things in him. But this, again, brings back that argument to me is... Being a serial killer, is this a genetic or an environmental factor? What, when you hear about cases like Kemper, what do you think? I mean, I am really of the, uh, of the mindset that it's nature and nurture. I don't, I don't think that it's one over the other, I think, because I think that there are a lot of people out there who did have violent 
neglected childhoods who haven't become serial killers. And there's people who have this run in their family, have violence run in their family who don't become serial killers. And then there's people who have no signs of it and then who end up do become violent later on. So I think it's, it's kind of some kind of confluence of nature and nurture. And I think it's really hard to uh, identify either of those. I think certainly his, there's, there does seem to be, I don't know maybe if there's physical violence in his childhood. It didn't sound like there was a whole lot, but there's certainly verbal and emotional well, abuse. I think back then the spanking and hitting and slapping and things like that, I think were somewhat normal in many families That's and true. not considered abuse back then um, because he was born That's in true. 48, December 18th, 1948. He was born. Um, 10 people he murdered. Okay. Yeah. Including uh, there, his grandparents. I mean, there's certainly evidence of emotional and verbal abuse from his childhood. And the, the crazy thing to me is in these interviews, he sounds, he's clearly intelligent. Very, like you very can tell from yeah. his, his interviews, he's clearly very intelligent and he sounds so docile. What's funny and then is you hear him and you hear about what he did and it's just, it's, it doesn't go it's together. So, no, it's, it's completely incongruous. And it's just, and, and the way, the reason I liked Mindhunter so much the first season, the actor who played Ed Kemper was incredible. He was very big. He looked the part and he sounded like him. Like he was just like, you're sitting at one point, I think there's a scene where the, the profiler is sitting across from him and he, Ed Kemper says to him, you know, I could kill you before the police got to me. Yeah. He's so and it's just, and he so just strong. says it as matter of factly, like he's not going to, it's just, he says it like, as long as you know, this is, I know, I know what I can do to you. And this is just another conversation piece. Well, I think that's more it's of a mind game bonkers. on his part. It's more of a mind game yeah. on his part because he is extremely intelligent. So he knows how to play those mind games with people. What's interesting is that he is incarcerated in the same area as Mullins. And it's my understanding from stories that I've heard that he sort of, made it his mission to sort of pick on and belittle Mullins in prison. Yeah. And he would throw peanuts at him and make jokes on his expense and just call out after him and just do everything he could to make this guy's life extremely miserable, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. But this guy killed his parents, his, his paternal grandparents when he was 15 years old. At that period of time, he was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. Okay. They sentenced him. Oh, interesting. At, I didn't know that. Yes. He was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, which is interesting because what happened to him when he was a child and how in many instances, when you suffer from horrific abuse and neglect, paranoid schizophrenia can be a result when it is so severe that your mind divides itself into separate compartmentalized areas to deal with the pain, to survive. Mm -hmm. And it sounds as though he must have done this in order to survive as a child when he felt neglected and rejected and alone. His mind just sort of splintered into different areas and created this within him. But at the eight, he so he spent about five years at the Atascadero State Hospital for the criminally insane. It's a juvenile hospital, by the way. At the age of 21, he convinced the psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated. So he was regarded as wow. non-threatening to his by his victims. What did this dude do to convince them is just, it blows my mind. And I also wonder if the nuclear weapons, nuclear testing, and all the stuff that his father worked on when before and during the time that Edmund was a young man, if that impacted in any way 
the sperm or the genetics or the DNA of his father. Right. Yeah. Well, and didn't they say also, cause because of where he worked at the hospital, he like memorized the answers to the psychological tasks. Um, I don't know. That does not sound unusual or, um, like something that he wouldn't have done. Um, right. Some more interesting little tidbits about him. He was born weighing 13 pounds. Jesus. And was a head, at least a head taller than his peers by the age of four. No wonder his mom hated him. But he did have that behavior of cruelty to animals, which is kind of a serial killer thing for some folks. Um, Killing cats was kind of his thing. Yeah, and and decap or taking the heads off of his his sister's dolls. Yeah, yeah. So he performed the thing rituals about stalking with those his dolls. Teacher too is really is really creepy. Yes. Um, this is interesting. On one, so he obviously was doing some weird shit to his sister's pets and dolls and things like that. But on one occasion, his older sister Susan teased him and asked why he did not try to kiss his teacher, and he replied, "If I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. And that was like, what, second grade? Yeah. So he clearly has an association between violence and sex. Yes. That, at that age, which yes. is incredibly it's early awful. to have any kind of but I notion think about sex. That he is, because his parents were the ones that were sort of exhibiting this violence and hatred towards him. That And he loved his parents because that's what you're supposed to do as a child. That he began mm-hmm. to associate those two things as one and the same. But what's interesting is that he would play these games as a child. His favorite games were gas chamber and electric chair where he asked, yeah, those his, are pretty, pretty classic. Right. When he asked his younger sister to tie him up and flip on an imaginary switch, then he would tumble and writhe all over the floor, pretending to be dying of gas inhalation or electric shock. He also had near death experiences as a child. Once when his older sister tried to push him in front of a train and another one, she successfully pushed him into the deep end of a swimming pool where he almost drowned. So clearly this family has got some fucked up. Like what kind of sister tries to push her brother in front of a fucking train? My sister hit me over the head with a frying pan when I was little. Yeah. My sister dropped (laughs) a a boulder on top of my head and shoved me and like did all (laughs) kinds of awful things to me, but pushing you in front of a fucking train. Yeah. Maybe she like didn't understand the permanent consequences of death. I don't know. It's just, it sounds absolutely horrifying to be living in this family when his mother's locking him in the basement every night and is evidently he had a close relationship with his father, despite the fact that his father was like, Hey, I don't want my son to be gay. So I'm going to toughen him up. But he was pretty devastated when his parents separated. Um, And this, you know, sucked for him. It made his life living hell because having to stay with his mother was, this woman was awful. He had her. It kind of sounds like maybe he thought he had a closer relationship with his father than his father had with him. It's possibly, you know. But in any case, his relationship with his mother was about the as opposite yeah. of, as normal as can be. It was severely dysfunctional. She was a neurotic, domineering alcoholic who would frequently belittle, humiliate, and abuse him. In addition to making Classic him making him sleep now. in that the basement because. She feared he would harm his sisters. She regularly mocked him for his large size. He was 6'4 by the age of 15 and derided him as a real weirdo. She That's, was, okay, she was the one. Okay, sorry. Really rough. I take it back. The father was not the one that would coddle him because they didn't want, he didn't want him to turn gay. The mother was the one that did that. 
Okay. So, and she told him that he reminded her of his father and that no woman would ever love him. So Kemper described her as a sick, angry woman, which it's a pretty nice description after doing what she said. But evidently, um, most people kind of speculate that she was suffering from, at the very least, borderline personality disorder. Yeah, that's, it sounds like there's something going on. It's just, she's just cruel. And then it sounds as though his grandparents also had mental issues. He described mm-hmm. his grandfather as senile and his grandmother as constantly emasculating me and my grandfather. So clearly he's got these sort of parental figures who are, have no respect for one another and who constantly belittle and just, this is an environment of pretty much severe abuse, if, if not physically, psychologically in the extreme. And, and, uh, dominant women, like that's the prevailing. Absolutely. You know? So when questioned by the authorities, so obviously he kind of got to the point where he got enraged and fed up. Um, it says, August 27, 1964, Kemper's grandmother, Maud Matilda Hughley Kemper, was sitting at the kitchen table when she and Kemper had an argument. Enraged by the argument, Kemper stormed off and grabbed a rifle that was his grandfather's. He returned to the kitchen, excuse me, grabbed a rifle that his grandfather had given him for hunting. He then returned to the kitchen and fatally shot his grandmother in the head before firing twice more into her back. Some accounts mention that she also Mm. suffered post-mortem stab wounds with a kitchen knife. When Kemper's grandfather came home from the grocery store, Kemper went outside and shot him in the driveway. He was unsure of what to do next and phoned his mother who urged him to contact the police. Kemper then called the police and waited for them to take him into custody. So this just sounds extremely sad to me. Like somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, who doesn't understand the consequences, who is in such a miserable and awful situation that he snaps. That's what it sounds like to me. And he has like an interesting respect for authority. He does. Because he calls his mom and then he just waits for the police to get yeah. there. And then very docilely when he could run and just sits there and waits. He could run. He could have definitely run. Mm-hmm. But it says when questioned by the authorities, Kemper said he just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma. Ew. And then he killed his grandfather because he didn't want him to have to find out that his wife was dead. So kind that of a mercy, mercy killing answer. for the grandfather. Yeah, didn't he have, like, a pretty good relationship with his grandfather? It sounds as though he did. Um, yeah. When in, so his psychiatrist during this time, when interviewing Kemper, at length during adulthood, wrote that with these murders, in his way, he had avenged the rejection of both his father and his mother. Kemper's crimes were deemed incomprehensible for a 15-year-old to commit, and court psychiatrists diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic before sending him to the criminally insane unit. Okay, so I wonder if he really was paranoid schizophrenic. It doesn't, that doesn't sound like paranoid schizophrenia. Because that was at the age of 15. After we just talked about Herbert Mullen. Right. So I wonder if that was just sort of a... You can't diagnose anybody before you're 18. Right. Before they're 18. I wonder if that was just sort of a catch-all back then. Because they didn't understand him. So interestingly enough, a little bit about his time when he was in the um, mental hospital. So the psychiatrists and social workers strongly disagreed with court psychiatrists and their diagnosis. So they didn't think he was paranoid schizophrenic at all. Their report stated that he showed no flight or ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delusion or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking. And these are all key sort of milestones and and sort of measuring stones when it comes to the diagnosis of of paranoid schizophrenia. Um, And then they had recorded him with an IQ of 136. He was re-diagnosed and stated as having a personality trait disturbance and passive-aggressive type. 
Later in his time, he was also diagnosed, diagnosed with, excuse me, later at this time at the mental hospital, he was tested with a higher IQ of 145. So he endeared himself to the psychiatrist there at the hospital by pretty much being sort of a model prisoner and was treat, it was trained to administer psychiatry. And he was trained to administer psychiatry. What the fuck? Psychiatric. He was trained to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. So they were like, we like this guy. He's such an endearing little, little, he's such an endearing, endearing, huge monster. Let's let him help us. Little murderer. Right? Let's let him help us. One of his psychiatrists later stated he was a very good worker and this is not typical of a sociopath. He really took pride in his work. Kemper also became a member of the J.C.'s Willen at, at Escadero and stated that he developed some new tests and new scales in the Minnesota multi, multifacic personality inventory, specifically an overt hostility scale during his work with the psychiatrist. After his second arrest, wow. Kemper stated that, he, that being able to understand how these tests functioned allowed him to manipulate his psychiatrist and admitted that he had learned a lot from the sex offenders to whom he administered the test. For example, they told him it was best to kill a woman after raping her to avoid leaving witnesses. This is a whole lot of shit right here. Jesus Christ. Granted, the mental health industry was extremely different 30 years ago, but this just sounds like a bunch of fucking morons running the insane asylum. Am I right? Yes. It sounds not unlike the horse in a hospital. If you listen to John Mulaney stand up. Just some crazy shit. I mean, and and granted, he does sound like he was extremely intelligent. He understood these tests. He understood the diagnosis. He understood sort of the stuff that was going on in the brains of these men that he was administering the test with. And they pretty much just let this guy run with it and do what he wanted, it sounds like. Because he was so kind of docile and nice looking and, and helpful that they figured, oh, he's a hard worker, so he couldn't be a killer. Well, they probably also figured because he murdered somebody in his own family that it was a one-off. Like, he's not going to go around murdering other people that are not related to him. Absolutely So they probably didn't consider him characteristically violent. On his 21st birthday, he was released from the mental hospital against the recommendations of psychiatrists at the hospital. He was released into the care of Clarnell. So they were okay with releasing him because they thought he wasn't a danger, but they absolutely did not want him going back into the care of his mother because they understood that she was a fucking crazy bitch who would yeah. have no love for him and who, who would, would not help his mental health or physical situation in the very least. But he ended up going back to her. Um, she was working at that time for the university of California, Santa Cruz and Kate uh, Kemper later demonstrated further to his psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated and his juvenile records were permanently expunged. Scary. So you can murder somebody Mm. and have your your record expunged. So it says, here's the direct quote from from the probation psychiatrist. If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illness. It is my opinion he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be any danger to himself or any member of society. And since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. This pretty much sounds like these fuckers were so narcissistic and so vain that they thought, oh, my God, look what we've done. We're so fucking amazing. We cured this kid. Wow. Talk about a swing and a mess. Jesus Christ. Right? These guys. Incredible. Incredible. 
But while staying with his mother, he attended community college. This was one of the requirements of his parole and had hoped to become a police officer. Again, here's that link again Mm -hmm. with a lot of other serial killers. Interestingly enough, he was rejected because of his size. I had no idea that Hmm. was even a thing. At the time of his release, he stood six foot nine inches tall, which led to his nickname Big Ed. But despite the fact that he was rejected, I wonder what the size limit was. I would be interested in hearing that. Despite the fact that he was rejected, he maintained relationships with Santa Cruz police officers despite his rejection and became self-described as a friendly nuisance at the bar called the Jury Room, which was a popular hangout for local law enforcement officers. So he was like hanging out with these guys, chatting it up, probably getting a lot of information about crime. And it probably gave him even more about his own crimes too. And it seems as though he's the kind of person that would study. Uh What is the best way to do research and study the best way to do anything, including killing people. He worked a series of menial jobs before securing employment at the California state highway department, also known as the department of transportation, the CDOT. During this time, his relationship with his mom just turned super toxic and hostile. They used to have huge knockdown, drag out arguments. The neighbors all heard his, he described his arguments as saying, my mother and I started right in on horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. I would go to fists with a man, but this was my mother and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it and just over stupid things. I remember one roof raiser was over whether I should have my teeth cleaned. So it sounds like she just was a constant nag, 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 nag. And a person can only take so much of that, right? Well, they probably did it to each other. Like, they probably pushed each other's buttons, you know what I mean? Oh, I'm sure. Like, she doesn't sound like she was any peach, but he also, I'm sure, like, knew what to do with, like, picking fights and stuff, too. Oh, yeah. At the same time... He realized that, you know, living with her was not going to do him any favors, so he saved up enough money to be able to go live with a friend, but he would return periodically to his mother's apartment because he didn't have money and and then leave again when he had enough money to do so. So he started, at the time he began working for the highway department, he started dating a 16-year-old Turlock high school student to whom he would later become engaged. So that part of his life was at least somewhat normal, although I'm sure at that time period they were not having sex. I'm sure it was very like hand holding, conservative. But yeah, get how this. How old was he? Um, I think early twenties. It doesn't say a specific age. Okay. But I don't think it was uncommon during that time period for someone who was twenty one, twenty two, twenty three to date someone at sixteen. During that year, he was hit by a car while riding a motorcycle. His arm was badly injured, and he received a fifteen thousand dollars settlement in a civil suit. He filed against the car's driver. Um, so while he was driving, he bought a Ford galaxy with that, a 1969 Ford galaxy. And while he was driving around, he noticed a large number of young women hitchhiking and began storing plastic bags, knives, blankets, and handcuffs in his car. He then really, we have this person who hit him to blame. Had he not gotten that $15,000 settlement? Pretty much. This never would have happened. He studied again, researched, right? So initially he began picking up girls and then peacefully letting them go. So he picked up about 150 of those before he felt homicidal sexual urges, which he called little zapples. Ew, what? Yeah, little zapples. (laughs) And then he started acting on them. Zapples. 
Z A P P L E S. Just keep them in my pocket whenever Pretty I need a little much. So at that point, that's when he started picking up and, and killing these poor girls. Marianne Peach, Anita Luchessa, Akito Koo, and then Cindy Shawl. Awful, 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 awful. These are college students. Fucking college students. So he picked up the dancer. She was only 15. She was a dance student. She was, okay, so let's start at the beginning and just do a brief summary. Because I think at the very least, these ladies deserve it. Marianne Peach and Anita Luches. He got them in 1972 while driving in Berkeley. He picked them. They were hitchhiking, Fresno State students. On the pretext of taking them to Stanford University, he picked them up. After driving for about an hour, he managed to reach a secluded area, wooded area. He was familiar with this area from his work with the highway department. And without alerting his passengers, he had changed directions. He took them there. He intended to rape them. He was that manipulative and that good at lying. He had initially intended to, intended to rape them, but having learned from serial rapists at Atascadero to not leave witnesses, he instead handcuffed them and locked one of them in the trunk. He then stabbed and strangled Pesh to death before killing Luchessa in a similar manner. He later confessed that while handcuffing Pesh, he brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts and it embarrassed him. Before adding that he even said, whoops, I'm sorry. <laughs> for grazing her breast despite murdering her minutes later so he just felt humiliated and degraded as an adult man with any sort of sexual maneuver or touching or inadvertently brushing a breast of one of these students but he had no problems having sex with them when they were dead right well well that's probably why he needed the necrophilia because he needed like the control like they couldn't reject him at that point right but he put both of their bodies in the trunk of his ford galaxy and returned to his apartment this was the point where he got stopped for the taillight being out and they didn't detect the corpses in the car. Since his roommate was not at home, he took the bodies into his apartment where he took photographs of them and had sexual intercourse with them. The naked corpses, oh God, before dismembering them. He then put the body parts into plastic bags and abandoned them up in the mountains. He then disposed of their severed heads in a ravine after he engaged in sexual conduct with them. Yeah. In August, Pesha's school was found up in Loma Prieta Mountain. An intensive search failed to turn up the rest of the remains or traces of Luchessa. The second, or excuse me, the third victim was on the evening of September 14th, 72. Kemper picked up a 15-year-old dance student. She was hitchhiking to a dance class after missing her bus. He again drove her to a remote area, pulled a gun on her before accidentally locking himself out of his car, which for such a smart guy, like how the fuck do you lock yourself out of your own car? Right. So after, however, Koo led him back inside. Kemper had previously gained the 15-year-old's trust while holding her at gunpoint. Back inside the car, he proceeded to choke her unconscious, rape, and kill her. He subsequently packed her body into the trunk of the car, had a few drinks at a nearby bar, then exited the bar and opened his trunk, admiring his catch like a fisherman, and returned to his apartment. Back... At his apartment, he had sexual intercourse with the corpse before dismembering it and disposing of the remains in a similar manner as the previous two victims. Ku's mother called the police to report the disappearance of her daughter and put up hundreds of flyers asking for information but did not receive any responses regarding the daughter's location or status. And it doesn't say here now whether they ever found her. Cindy Shawl. Huh. This happened January 7th, 1973. Kemper moved back in with his mother and was driving around the Cabrillo College campus when he picked up an 18-year-old student. This was Cynthia Ann Shaw. He drove to a sequestered wooded area and fatally shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He then placed her body in the trunk of his car and drove to his mother's house where he kept her body hidden in a closet in his room overnight. 
So he took it inside with his mother there and put it in a closet. When his mother left for work the next morning, he had sexual intercourse with the corpse and removed the bullet before dismembering and decapitating her in his mother's bathtub. Kemper kept oh. Shaw's severed head for several days. He violated the skull before burying it in his mother's garden, facing toward her bedroom. That goes back to that remark, always wanting people to look up at her. He discarded the rest of her remains by throwing them off a cliff. Over the course of the following few weeks, all but Shaw's head and right hand were discovered and pieced together like a macabre jigsaw puzzle. Police and a pathologist determined that she had been hacked to death and cut into pieces with a power saw. Oh, my God. Rosalind Thorpe and Allison Lee. On February 5th, 1973, after a heated argument with his mother, Kemper left his house in search of possible victims with the heightened suspicion of a serial killer preying on hitchhikers in Santa Cruz area. Students were advised to only get into cars with university stickers on them. Guess what? Kemper had a sticker since his mother worked at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Uh, Fucking horrifying. He encountered these two young ladies on the USCS campus. According to Kemper, Thorpe entered his car first, which reassured the other girl to also enter. He then fatally shot both of them with his 22 caliber pistol, wrapped their bodies in blankets, and took off. Kemper again brought his victims back to his mother's house. This time he beheaded them in his car and carried the headless corpses to his mother's house to have sexual intercourse with them. He then dismembered the bodies, removed the bullets to prevent identification, and the next morning discarded the remains. Some were found at Eden Canyon a week later, and more were found nearby Highway 1 in March. When questioned in an interview as to why he removed his victims' heads before performing sexual acts to the bodies, he explained, The head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, eyes, mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true, but a lot. there's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. What the actual fuck? Yeah. So next, obviously, he killed his mother and Sally Hallett, his mother's best friend. On April 20th, 1973, after coming home from a party... 52-year-old Clarnell Elizabeth Strandberg, she had gotten married since her son got out of the mental hospital, awakened her son with her arrival. While sitting in her bed reading a book, she noticed Kemper enter her room and said to him, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. What a bitch. Kemper replied, Mm. nope, good night. He then walked, he then waited for her to fall asleep and returned to bludgeon her with a claw hammer and then slit her throat with a knife. He subsequently decapitated her and engaged in, again, sexual activity with her severed head before using it as a dartboard. He then stated he put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour, threw darts at it, and ultimately smashed her face in. He also cut out her tongue and larynx and put them in a garbage disposal. However, however, the garbage disposal could not break down the tough vocal cords and ejected the tissue back into the sink. That seemed appropriate, Kemper later said, as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. Kemper then hid his mother's corpse in a closet and went out to drink. Upon his return, he invited her best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor Sally Hallett, over to the house for dinner and a movie. So... I'm kind of curious how that went down because, yeah, hey, mom's not around. Or did he say mom wants you to come over for this? I think it was the latter. I think he said mom wants you to come over. Okay. But when this. Yeah, I don't understand. Not that I understand any of it, but I don't understand 
what why he invited her in the first place like why 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 did it's almost like he wanted to make his mother pay in as many ways as he could and this was the only thing left that he could think of was to kill her best friend too but in any case he strangled her decapitated her and spent the night with her body he subsequently put her corpse in the closet obscured any outward signs of disturbance and left a note to the police reading Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore in the hands of this horrible murderer's butcher. It was quick, asleep the way I wanted it. No sloppy, not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. Good Lord. So he left the scene, what? and then that's when he drove to Pueblo, Colorado. He didn't hear any news about the desk because no one had freaking discovered him. But um, right. called and confessed all that. So... The trial was May 7th, 1963, when he was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder. The court-appointed psychiatrist found him to be legally sane. So I'm sure they did a whole shit ton of tests on him to try to figure out what was going on with him. They also gave him truth serum, but (laughs) he relayed to the court that he had engaged in cannibalism, allegedly that he sliced flesh from the legs of his victims and cooked and consumed these strips of flesh in a casserole. Nevertheless, they determined he was fully cognizant in each case and stated that he enjoyed the prospect of the infamy associated with being labeled a murderer. Camper later recanted any confession of cannibalism. So they gave him this they, <laughs> battery of psychological tests, just battered, battered, battered him, gave him true serum, and during that time period, he confessed to cannibalism, but then later recanted, which is well, interesting. Well, in true serum, like, the name obviously is a misnomer. I think it's, what is it, sodium pentothal? But, yes. uh... Like it's, it doesn't actually make you tell the truth. It just lowers your inhibitions. So you're just really suggestible. So if somebody said, oh, did you engage in a cannibalism? He would have probably agreed to that, whether or not that was actually the truth. So that's why it's not like used anymore. In any case, on November 8th, 1973, a six man, six woman jury convened for five hours before declaring Kemper sane and guilty on all counts. He asked for the death penalty, requesting death by torture. However, wow. because there was a moratorium placed on capital punishment at the time, he instead received seven years to life for each count, with these terms to be served concurrently and was sentenced to the California Medical Facility. That must be a typo. It must be 70 years. I don't know. Anyway. I can't, yeah, it can't possibly be seven. Not concurrently. And he is uh-uh. serving at the California Medical Facility. So he is obviously was incarcerated with Herbert Mullen and Charles Manson. There's a picture of him in back in 2011. He looks very, very different. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's, it's, he kind of had this disdain for Mullen. So he calls him just a cold blooded killer, killing everybody he saw for no good reason. Kemper manipulated and physically intimidated Mullen, who stood only five feet, seven inches tall and was more than a foot shorter than he. Kemper stated that Mullen had a habit of singing and bothering people when somebody tried to watch TV, so I threw water on him to shut him up. Then, when he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts, so he called him Herbie. That was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to sing. That's called behavior modification treatment. (laughs) This fucking guy. This is insane. But, again, like I mentioned earlier, he's considered a model prisoner. He's kicking ass. He's helping out. He's doing books on tape. He's like doing interviews and helping people try to figure out the minds of serial serial killers by giving them insights into the brain of a violent criminal. See, and he is actually the biggest reason I say 
I'm against the death penalty in cases like this because there's something to be learned from people like him. Absolutely. You know, and same with the, with PK. Wait, if they're willing to participate and talk, if they're not, then there's no point in keeping that person alive. But this guy, he's a prolific interviewer and right. His, he was first eligible for parole in 79 and was denied that same year. Wow. It must've been seven years because that's he was convicted in 73. Purpose. He was denied parole that year as well as parole hearings in 80, 81, and 82. He subsequently waived his right to a hearing in 85. He was denied parole at his 88 hearing when he said, society is not ready in any shape or form for me. I can't fault them for that. He was denied parole again in 91 and in 94. He then waived his right to a hearing in 97 and 2002. He attended the next hearing in 2007, which we, he was again denied parole. Prosecutor Simmons said, we don't care how much of a model prisoner he is because of the enormity of his crimes. Kemper waived his right to a hearing in 2012. In 2016, attorney Scott Curry represented Kemper, relayed to the media that Kemper believes no one is ever going to grant him parole and that he's happy going on about his life in prison. He was again denied parole in 2017 and is not eligible again until 2024. So I think when you get to a certain point, you're only eligible every five to 10 years. Yeah. The thing with this is because he was sentenced back in the seventies, they didn't really have uh, the whole death penalty slash automatic, I think sentencing with respect to those sorts of things. So they did give him seven years with possibility of parole. Fucking banana sandwich. And like, I mean, he's absolutely right. Like, he would do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about this for a second. no, until he dies, he will do this again. There's a couple of things. So this guy served as the inspiration for the character of Buffalo Bill in Thomas Harris' Silence of the Lambs and the 91 film adaption. Like Kemper, Bill begins his criminal life by fatally shooting his grandparents as a teenager. He's also the inspiration of Edgler Vess, in Dean Koontz's novel, Intensity. Patrick Bateman in the 2000 film, American Psycho, mistakenly attributes a quote to Kemper by, a quote by Kemper to Ed Gein saying, you know what Ed Gein said about women? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her to be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And the other part of me wonders what her head would look like on a stick. That actually was not Ed Gein's quote. It was Kemper. So mm-hmm. I think wow. they did not attribute it correctly in that movie, but it's somewhat inspirational. That's what Kemper said. But I mean, as far as the, out of those three killers, Kemper is definitely hands down the most interesting. Yeah, for sure. Because the one is legit crazy. Well, I guess the, the both of them were legit crazy. All of them were legit crazy. But Well, I mean, like, like you could mount a, a legal insanity case for the first two. Yes, because they were like clearly schizophrenia type situations. Right. Yeah. So uh, we're going to end this on a little bit of a lighter note. Um, talking about UC Santa Cruz. So their mascot is really fun. It is the banana slug. And from their website, they have the banana slug, a bright yellow, slimy, shellless mollusk commonly found on the redwood floor was the unofficial mascot for UC Santa Cruz co-ed teams since the university's early years. The students' embrace of such a lowly creature was their response to the fierce athletic competition fostered at most American universities. And when they actually formed like NCAA teams, the chancellor had to put down a mascot, and he decided that the sea lion was going to be a better mascot, a little bit more fierce, um, and it was 
promptly and roundly rejected by everybody. So they finally had to actually adopt the banana slug. <laughs> but I think that's awesome. When the when the men's tennis team played in the NCAA championships, their T-shirts read "Banana Slugs, No Known Predators." <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna eat one of those crazy looking things. They're just exactly. nasty, 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 <laughs> nasty. Very cool. I really get a kick out of that. The banana slugs, and it's kind of like I think their mascot, like the actual cartoon mascot, has like glasses and like he's holding a book like i think he's supposed to be like a bookworm i don't know but i freaking love slugs like especially cartoon slugs i I can't get enough i think they're so cute real life slugs Mm. eh, maybe not as much because they're not so cute in real life but like the cartoon slugs and little characters with slugs and things like that i think that's cute although it pisses me off because the slugs are eating the hell out of my strawberry plants in the yard and Uh. not cool but anyway Um, I think we are going to have to do the emails next episode since we're already way past the hour on this one. Um, Plug our social media. Uh, We are on the Twitters at the BFD podcast, and that is also our handle on Instagram. So go follow uh, and rate, review, and subscribe, and that helps us. And what's our email? Our email is thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We love your emails. Please send us emails if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions. In the meantime, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. See ya.